Do you feel like a complete and utter Muppet? I'm sitting around reading law books on the weekend going, oh god, this is interesting. <laughs> they've, they've amended section 127. This was supposed to send you off on a good note, not a <laughs> <laughs> thinking about climate change. You're listening to The Briefcase. Hello and welcome to episode 41. It is Friday, 20 October 2023. I'm Sarah and I am your host. And at the time of recording, the world is pretty much falling apart. So today, I'm not going to make a joke or even a silly observation. I will instead point your attention to some very excellent interviews in the Briefcase Archive that explore some of the issues impacting us both locally and globally right now. In Australia, of course, we've just had a referendum on the voice to parliament and you can revisit our conversation on that topic with constitutional law and colonialism expert Dylan Lino in episode 39. And in a more global context, if you're interested in refreshing your mind on how the law and armed conflict can possibly coexist, you can listen to our interview with Ryan Levoyer, Professor and Deputy Dean of Research at the UQ Law School in episode 34, which was recorded in the context of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. But of course, if you really want to learn from the experts, you can always go to Twitter. Anyway, what's in the briefcase this week? It is my fourth and final interview this season with an absolute academic rock star. I recently sat down with the very engaging and funny Joseph Lelliot, Professor of Advanced Crime and Criminology at the University of Queensland, who kindly and very patiently stepped me through the laws against people smuggling, human trafficking, and despite my very many stupid questions and silly observations, demystified how these two distinct legal concepts cross over and interact in the real world. Season three of The Briefcase is brought to you by our friends at the University of Queensland Law School. Check the show notes for a master's custom built for you. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. What have you been up to? Uh, Well, today um, I got into work and I read some stuff and then I went to, I was just in a meeting around uh, teaching strategies for next semester. So cool. yeah, I'm currently designing a new, a new, I'm designing a new course on advanced crime for next year as well. So advanced crime. Yeah. Advanced, not just normal crime, advanced crime and criminology <laughs> technically. Oh, that's, the right. full, that's the full name of the course. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. It deals more with the procedural aspects of criminal law. Okay. As, as in like, rather than just the substantive offenses. Yeah. Right. So as yeah. in, like mooting? Do you do that? Um, well, to be honest, I'm currently designing it for the first time, so who knows? Do mooting. It could be anything. It has to be. I can mooting. shape it in my image. Ah, oh, yeah. you can have a whole exam just about you. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah list my 10 best qualities <laughs> and explain why they are your favorite qualities of mine. <laughs> and it's a 100% final assessment. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That would be totally me if I was in your position. <laughs> so, what are we talking about today? What are we talking about? We can kind of talk about, I mean, a variety of things. My, my PhD was on the smuggling and trafficking of children. Mm-hmm. And that's, and migrant smuggling and human trafficking are, I guess, the two areas where I've sort of focused a lot of my research over the past four to five years mm-hmm. since I've been an academic. What is the, the legislation or uh, the landmark cases that underpin that area of law of smuggling, people smuggling? People smuggling, human trafficking. Well, I guess if we focus on, these are kind of interrelated phenomena. So they often overlap um, in practice, but they are distinct legal concepts. 
rather than I think thinking about it in terms of domestic legislation or case law, I think it's useful to think about it, first of all, in terms of the international framework, right. which very much informs how we think about these two things. Yep. So um, migrant smuggling is, I guess, defined by a particular treaty. Um, it's defined by a protocol which sits under the UN Convention um, Against Transnational Organized Crime. Right. So there is a subsidiary instrument under that, which is basically in shorthand the Protocol Against Migrant Smuggling, okay. and it asks states to make that a crime. Okay. Um, so Australia has a suite of criminal offenses contained in the Migration Act, okay. which make it a crime basically to facilitate the illegal entry into Australia of a person who doesn't have a right to be in this country, to put it very, very briefly and simply. Yeah, right. Yeah. Why is it important that different countries around the world make that a crime? Obviously, how you construe the importance of it depends on your perspective on the issue. Mm. But I mean, states broadly see control over their borders and who comes in and in some cases who leaves mm. their borders, their, their territories, as being sort of a fundamental part of their sovereignty. So their sovereign control over who comes in and who leaves. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, obviously the alternative to that is you have open borders and anyone can leave and enter at any time. But yes. I mean... For a variety of reasons, states don't particularly like, don't, don't particularly like that. Okay, so that's that's migrant smuggling. Yeah. The other concept you mentioned is being a legally distinct concept of human, human trafficking. trafficking. So yep. tell me about that. So human trafficking. So I mean, going back once again. So the the protocol, the international treaty that relates to trafficking, um, also sits under the UN Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime. So it's kind of like a sister instrument to the protocol against smuggling. Right. Um, trafficking is different to smuggling in a number of ways. So. When we think about smuggling, kind of the crux of that is that facilitation of illegal entry. Mm -hmm. So it fundamentally involves migration, it involves the uh, movement of one person into the territory of another country from another. Mm -hmm. Human trafficking, the fundamental sort of, I guess, crux of human trafficking is the concept of exploitation. So while trafficking may involve migration, it doesn't necessarily need to. So a person can be trafficked within one country, you, you don't even particularly need to move at all to mm. be trafficked, mm. right? So there's no... That is such a weird concept, though, to, to think that you could be trafficked without even moving. Yeah, I, no. I, I think of trafficked as being moved against your will and for... You know. Yeah, no, and that's kind of like... That's, that's kind of a, a common misconception. And I mean, so I'm talking specifically about how this is defined internationally. And at the international level, if you look at the definition of trafficking in the UN Convention, doesn't require movement. Yeah. One of the acts that can be trafficking is harboring. If you harbor someone, you're not moving them. Yeah. You, have to, you can you have them in one place. But isn't that false imprisonment? Potentially, yeah. So I think you should, I mean, also, of course, the things that constitute trafficking can also be other crimes. Yes, right. Of course. I mean, like things like false imprisonment, I mean, various um, non fatal offenses against the person can yes. be involved in trafficking someone. Yes. All, all those kinds of things. Trafficking often involves. A number of component actions which might also constitute criminal offenses. Right, okay, okay. Yeah. So trafficking is defined in the protocol against trafficking in persons as basically involving three elements, an act, a means, and a purpose element. So the act is something that the, that the trafficker does to a trafficked person, say harboring them, 
recruiting them, etc. Then there's a means element, which might be something like deception, coercion, threats, use of force. Mm -hmm. And then the purpose of trafficking is the final element, and that's exploitation. And that's kind of the crux. So trafficking is all about the exploitation of persons. I mean, trafficking can involve situations of debt bondage. This this doesn't happen as much in Australia. But in other countries, you might have sort of intergenerational um, situations of debt bondage, where someone is born into debt bondage and potentially then dies in debt bondage. What is, so what, you, you inherit the... You inherit the debt, yeah. Uh, from birth? From birth. And, uh, and, you're work, and perhaps you're working that off and then, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So, so, so just, I mean, the, the key point being trafficking doesn't have any sort of temporal maximum. Yeah. It's the period for which, I guess, the three elements that make trafficking combine. Do you have any figures on how many people are trafficked or, or smuggled or attempted to be trafficked or smuggled into Australia? Yeah, so in terms of both of these, I guess, phenomena, it's always incredibly difficult to get exact figures because both of them are often quite clandestine in how they occur. When it comes to smuggling, we might be able to get a better idea, particularly in terms of perhaps being able to track people, say, who were entering by boat. Mm-hmm. Okay, It used to be those figures were more widely available since the sort of shrouding of all these things on water matters in secrecy, um, particularly since 2013, 2014, and Operation Sovereign Borders, as mm-hmm. the Australian government calls it. Right. We don't get a lot of information about who is and how many people are trying to get into Australia. That's interesting though, right? It does make it harder to research. Yeah. yeah. It, used, it used to be you would get quite a, a good sort of summary of the figures of people who had been intercepted by the Australian government sort of trying to enter Australia. Yeah. But that kind of dried up um, around the change in 2013, 2014 with the LNP coming into power then. Right. Yeah. Is that something to do with the Stop the Boats? All to do with the Stop the Boats. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Beyond that as well, in terms of people who are smuggled into Australia by other ways, say by air, mm. it's very difficult to keep track of that because obviously anyone who successfully enters Australia by air, the whole point of smuggling is that you don't know, right? Yes. So it's hard to know exactly what those figures are. Generally? Around the world globally, obviously very, very large numbers. Right. I mean, obviously in Europe... High levels of of irregular migration generally, much of which is facilitated by migrant smugglers. Um, Say in the Americas, very high there as well. Obviously, lots of migrants, particularly from Central and Southern America, try to get into the United States of America, particularly across the Mexican border. In terms of flows elsewhere, I mean, generally very high. And throughout Southeast Asia as well, flows of irregular migrants, once again, many of whom... Um, are helped by migrant smugglers, that tends to be quite high. In terms of flows of smuggled migrants into Australia, those levels have fluctuated over time, depending on a variety of factors that are kind of hard to disentangle, but broadly relate to just flows of migration generally in the region and the push factors that drive those flows, as well as, of course, the sort of suite of legal and policy measures the Australian government has had at any one time designed to stop those forms of arrivals. Of course, the flip side to this is that the policy and legal measures the Australian government has used and continues to to stop unauthorised migration by sea breach a whole host of international laws in this area and and have often resulted in pretty sort of horrendous breaches of migrants' human rights. Right. Tell me about that. Tell you about that. (laughs) Once again, we can go on forever about this. I mean... 
I think I think most people would be at least sort of broadly familiar with the use of immigration detention in Australia for people who have arrived by boat. Mm-hmm. Um, over the years, that's either occurred onshore, offshore in Australian centres, say Christmas Island, then of course there's the centres on Nauru and PNG, which have operated to different extents at different times as well. Can I throw out a case reference and see if I'm on, on the money? Yeah, Al- go on. al Kateb and Godwin. Uh, yeah, 2004. Oh, well, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. citation. Yeah, no, yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, is, that, so, is that on point? I'd say, yeah, at some, some point, yeah. That's a Kirby yeah. decision, by the way. It is, well, a descent, right? Descent, yes. A descent. Yes. Yeah. All no. right, all right. Gee, I thought I was going toe to toe. I'm really not. <laughs> I'm really not. Uh, yeah, anyway, sorry to interrupt. Continue. No, that's okay. No, so, um, I mean, obviously, yeah, the conditions in those detention centers have often been, I think it's fairly widely known that they're not particularly good. I mean, there's no overarching sort of human rights legislation at the federal level in Australia, so there aren't those same constraints you might have in other countries like the United States or in many European jurisdictions um, around the use and standard of immigration detention and particularly the length of it as well. Yes. Um, That's probably one of the main things. I mean, there are a variety of other reasons, such as the fact that the Australian government has sort of offshored detention at various times to sort of third countries, sort of regional processing countries like PNG, so the Manus Island Detention Centre. So they sort of say, oh, it falls outside Australia's control and jurisdiction, even though obviously practically yes. they're very much within Australia's control yes. in those places. What would drive somebody to engage in smuggling themselves or their family I'm guessing desperation driven most most mm. times. Yeah, of course. I mean, the I mean the, the drivers for irregular migration are obviously many and complex. It can be conflict, wars, you know, persecution in their home country, it can be socioeconomic as well, mm. lack of jobs, it can be environmental disasters. There's so many things that drive irregular migration and mm. make people want to migrate. In terms of what causes people to be smuggled, those drivers are kind of separate from the causes of migration itself. The reasons people are smuggled is because, quite simply, they're not able to legally migrate. Obviously, if you had the choice, and you could, you would try and just legally enter a country, right? Like, yes. it's not ideal to try and unlawfully enter somewhere. No. Especially if that country's trying to do all it can to stop you entering. Yes. But the, the fact of the matter is that countries just don't have sufficient avenues for regular migration and where there isn't an avenue for regular legal migration that means that people have to turn to the services of migrant smugglers who help them obviously try and enter in an illegal or unauthorized way right i mean obviously governments don't want people to enter unlawfully in this agreement about that but how governments choose to affect that purpose is subject to lots of criticism, particularly in Australia. Yes. Yeah. Um, In terms of trafficking, we can all agree that trafficking is bad and it shouldn't happen, basically. So there's less contention around how, I guess, that purpose is affected. Mm. And in terms of anti-trafficking measures, I mean, once again, suite of criminal offences in the Commonwealth Criminal Code, okay, that target trafficking and various other related sort of crimes like slavery, forced labor, forced marriage, these these kinds of things, together with, of course, a variety of other sort of mechanisms and measures designed to identify victims of trafficking, stop people being trafficked, and offer protection to persons who have been trafficked as well. 
as well as seek prosecution where possible. Yeah, right. Any developments in that space or has that been fairly consistent too? So I guess one of the major developments in that sort of area of trafficking in Australia, but also in other countries increasingly as well, has been the use of modern slavery laws. What's, what's modern slavery? So itself, it's sort of a nebulous term. There is no precise legal definition of modern slavery. Right. There's no international treaty or instrument that says what modern slavery is. Okay. It's kind of an umbrella term that's used to describe or encapsulate um, a number of different forms of exploitation. Like what? So it includes the concept of trafficking in persons, it includes forced labor, forced marriage, slavery, slavery-like practices, servitude. That it, all still happens. It definitely, yeah, definitely, very unfortunately, all still happens. As you say, if somebody is trafficked into the country, that's going to be fairly under wraps. So how do you, like, how do they discover people that are in these situations and how do they help them? What's the, what, what processes are in place to sort of provide support after the fact? So it's, it's obviously really hard to identify persons who have been trafficked. That's one of the major, I guess, issues and barriers to successfully confronting trafficking in persons is that it is hard to identify people who are in those situations. You mentioned people being sort of brought into Australia, trafficked into Australia. I mean, you can be trafficked into Australia using legal migration avenues. Your trafficker can just bring you in here on a normal plane ticket and then exploit you once you're in Australia. Mm. So it's not always possible to identify people entering the country mm. um, in a situation of trafficking. Mm. People who are trafficked um, may not recognize they are in those situations. They might be very unfamiliar with the laws and legal regulations around these things, particularly if they've come from another country and they're unfamiliar with, say, employment standards and things like this. Is it the case that business owners traffic people from other countries in order to pay them a lower wage or no wage at all. And so, like you say, a lot of people may not even realize that they're being trafficked. What are some red flags? There are lists that are published by, say, um, the AFP, etc., on the sort of indicators of trafficking a number of things. So situations where, say, um, someone isn't in possession of their travel or identity documents, mm -hmm. so where they've been, say, confiscated by their employer. Um, for safekeeping? For safekeeping, right? <laughs> but usually as a method to sort of exert control yes. over that person. Yes. Um, other red flags might be, say, people who are living at their place of employment. Right. So whether they're being provided lodging where they are working, that mm. can be a sign. Obviously, these things don't always 100% indicate trafficking, no, right? No. But they're, they're red flags. Yes. Um, people who say, who say um, seem sort of scared um, or unfamiliar with their surroundings, um, perhaps have very poor English skills as well. All, it's like all these sort of different factors in combination can mm. potentially indicate trafficking. So as a lawyer, if you notice this in say a client who might come to you for migration visa purposes or really anything, and you just get a sense that maybe something's not quite right, what does a lawyer do? Is there a place to raise an alarm? Should you raise an alarm? And like, what happens there? Potential situations of trafficking can be reported. There are trafficking hotlines in Australia where um, suspicions can be lodged. Obviously, I think if people are aware or aware of potential situations of trafficking, you would hope that generally people would report them.
Okay, is there any aspect of this where um, a lawyer may cross over with it in terms of, yeah, the practical yeah. sort of in practice yeah. uh, application of these areas of law? Yeah. No, it's an interesting question. I mean, we see this quite a bit in other countries. Um, I'm not aware of many cases in Australia where this has happened as much, but um, particularly in, say, the UK and some other European jurisdictions, cases where someone is being prosecuted for a criminal offence and it later turns out that they have been coerced into committing that and they were in a situation of trafficking at the time. So, for example, you might apprehend someone who is, say, being prosecuted for drug production, let's say. Yes. Let's say that they were found growing and cultivating large quantities of cannabis, for example. Yeah. So, obviously, there you might just think, oh, prosecute them for drug offences, right? But it might turn out later down the line that this person didn't have much of a choice in the matter as to whether they were going to engage in this criminal activity. Right, okay? what happens there? So, in that case, obviously, questions then arise as to, well, does this, is this person going to be prosecuted? Right. Right, should you still prosecute them? If they didn't have a choice in the matter, obviously that raises criminal defences like duress compulsion. Right. Okay. There's also sort of a developing concept um, in international law, but also in other jurisdictions um, around a specific defence for people who are for trafficked persons, right. um, which is basically sort of founded on a principle of non-punishment. It basically says that you shouldn't punish a trafficked person for things they have been made to do as a result of their situation of trafficking. Right. So if they've been trafficked into a situation where they're forced to engage in certain criminal activities, drug production let's say as an example, then ideally you shouldn't really be prosecuting them for that right. offence. Alright, so I always end these conversations with a would you rather question. Doesn't make any sense, I do it just because I like. No, that's fine, that's okay. Would you rather sneeze non-stop for 15 minutes once every day yeah. or sneeze once every three minutes of the day while you're awake? Uh, definitely the 15 minute one. I'm gonna just get it out of the way. Can I choose when it is? No. Oh, okay, just at a random point. It would be, <laughs> very, it would be very awkward during teaching. Yes, exactly. But it would, but it would fill the time. <laughs> So if I'm kind of like, if I'm running out of material, I can just start sneezing uncontrollably. <laughs> oh, he started his sneezing. Oh, he started his sneezing fit. We can just leave. <laughs> it's time for a break. Joseph's sneezing again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely that one. I mean, sneezing once every three minutes would be incredibly disruptive. Yes. The last thing I'll ask is, am I detecting a UK accent underneath? Oh, uh, yeah, you are. Well? Yeah. Yes. No, I'm originally from um, England. Yeah. Yeah, where I moved about? here uh, from Seven Oaks in Kent. Ah. Yeah, it's like an hour south of London or so, yeah, from right. memory. Um, yeah, I moved here when I was 13. You migrated here. I migrated lawfully. <laughs> Good to hear. <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for this week on The Briefcase. It's time to close her up. See you next time. I'm Sarah Kral and this is The Briefcase.